And if you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to Habakkuk, it's towards the latter part of the Old Testament. And we'll begin this morning by reading from the beginning of the book. Our brother Payam brought us into where we will be studying this morning, but I want us to get the context and see where this is located. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your day which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwellings, places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand and they scoff at kings. Then princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earth and mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses and he commits offense, ascribing his power to his God. That was the description that God gave to Habakkuk on how he was going to handle the very things that Habakkuk was complaining about. If you remember last week, Habakkuk poured out his heart to God. It, essentially, why, God, do you allow this to continue? The, the nation, your people are so full of idolatry, rebellion, perversion. And you seem to stand idly by. <clears throat> and the Lord says, no, Habakkuk, you, you don't even know the beginning of it. And here is what I'm going to do. And he lays out to Habakkuk the very words that I just read about this terrible nation that will come and have its heavy hand of devastation upon God's people. You see, Habakkuk has complained to God about the evil of his people. And God has responded and revealed to him the full power and destruction of his plan for Judah. And what a devastating knockout blow to the prophet. Habakkuk now has a greater struggle than when he first made his case against God's inaction toward the evils of Judah. Upon hearing the magnitude of God's wrath and destruction, Habakkuk is shocked and confused. In the prophet's mind, the cure that God will carry out is worse than the sin disease he hated and poured out before God. <clears throat> Please, this morning, look carefully. Look carefully and learn about faith in this man, Habakkuk. This is not exposure of a weak faith by any means. This is the real-time live stream of a perplexed and disillusioned man who knows and believes very strongly in his Lord. 
Many of us, especially those who have sought Christ in faith for at least a few years now, have a sense of what Habakkuk is tormented by. He has experienced the faithfulness of God for many years. God has never failed him. The great love and holiness of God's character have only magnified through time as he has walked with him. But now, now Yahweh is bringing into his life a nightmare. Literally, it is the worst earthly catastrophe Habakkuk could dream of. In fact, God, God himself openly told him that it will be worse than he could even ever imagine. Now, although not yet to the degree of the destruction of every inch of our nation and city and the murder of practically everyone that we know, not to that degree, but many of us have been given trials. Trials that have pressed hard on us. Challenges that have perplexed us and blows that have beaten us down. Paul describes some of these hardships in life in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 4, he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning. Please move our hearts and minds to the very events going on in the life of Habakkuk and the people of Judah. Lord, so that we will understand how you moved and what you said and what he said, that we will get a grip of this, Lord. For it seems to be so contemporary. If any of us stop to look at what's going on or, or even within our own families, not simply the borders of our nation, but, but very near to us, we are often perplexed, disillusioned, discouraged. And yet we know you and we believe in you, Father, but we see Habakkuk this morning in the position magnified from anything we've been in. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would teach us. Teach us faith this morning. Teach us to believe and trust in you for who you are. As my brother said earlier in his prayer, not, not because of our circumstances, but because you are God and you are worthy. Please teach us. Please unlock these scriptures by your Holy Spirit so for us to understand. In your name we pray. Amen. Verse 12 begins, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. There is an anchor in knowing God. There is a fast, sure shelter Stronghold by knowing God. Astonished at the extreme condemnation of God's chastisement through the vile Chaldeans and disillusioned by how to put this and his righteous God together in his mind, Habakkuk here shows us something that someday 
And this is why I ask you to pay close attention to the word. Someday may save your faith. His approach may save even your life. This is crucial. From the shadows of confusion, Habakkuk turns his mind to the truths he knows about Yahweh. He speaks to God, in fact, and he declares, Are you not from everlasting? Are you not from everlasting, O Lord? O Lord, it is undeniable that you have no beginning and you have no end. This young earth upon which we live and the brief, brief history of man whom you created, they are but a blink of an eye. They are like a falling star that is so momentary that you're not even sure you saw it. But God, but God, and, and I'll use a double negative here, uh, but God, He has never not been. Even His plans have never not been. They are timeless. Second Corinthians, excuse me. Second Kings chapter 19 verse 25. Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isaiah, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Again, Isaiah, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And once more with Isaiah, I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them. And they came to pass. Everlasting. And then he goes on, O Lord. And that's not just tacked on there. That word is Yahweh. It is essentially God saying, I am. I am. This is Habakkuk's and his nation's own covenant keeping God. Yahweh. God gave them his name to speak. The name Yahweh communicates the completely unique and personal relationship that God has only with His people. As those led to faith by the Spirit of God, you and I, you and I also by faith, are owned by God and we also know Him personally as our Yahweh by faith. This name was first given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. We read there in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am about to come to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they will say to me, What is his name? And what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name from generation to generation. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I indeed care about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Yahweh. And then he goes on to say, my God, it's the word Elohim. And it it is a title that declares power. Elohim is used for roles of authority. And when it is combined with Yahweh, it declares the mighty power and authority of the one and only God. Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. When they were created in the day that Yahweh God, Elohim, made earth and heaven. Psalm 103, 100 verse 3. Know that Yahweh, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. And then he goes on with another, my holy one, Kadosh. It, it means to be set apart. Literally, it means to be cut. Sometimes, the, I think the clearest, clearest and yet it's nebulous way to describe what this is, is God is completely other. Everything we know and see is man and, and mortality and, and finiteness. God is not. God is other, completely different. Than what we are. And, and it also speaks of his purity. His absolute cleanness. He is separate. Revelation 4 verse 8. We have these four uh, intimidating, terrifying creatures. Each having six wings. And it says they were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest saying day and night. Love, love, love. No. Not justice, justice, justice. But what do these creatures say? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The holiness of our God. Do these statements, these titles given by Habakkuk really describe God? That is the question. They can flow out of our mouths on a Sunday morning or in a prayer meeting. We can read them easily. But is that really who God is? Is He everlasting? Is He a personal covenant keeping faithful God? Is He holy and set apart? Is He mighty? Omnipotent with no limitations? If so, and Habakkuk seems to have no doubt about these truths, what can Yahweh be doing by bringing the Chaldean army upon his own people? In the midst of reminding himself of the true character of God, an inescapable truth begins to rise through the dark night of Habakkuk's confusion. Look at what he says says there. It almost seems to be out of place says, we shall not die. Though the destruction of Jerusalem would be devastating, and the vast majority of the Jewish people would be decimated, the covenant-keeping Yahweh 
was not completely destroying his people. You see, long ago he had established boundaries and consequences within their relationship. I want you please to follow along carefully as I read Yahweh's promises and warnings from Leviticus. Please turn to the book of Leviticus. It's the third book in the Old Testament, way back at the beginning. Leviticus chapter 26. The first part of Leviticus 26 is what will happen if, if the people are faithful and they obey the covenant requirements. They obey this covenant with God. But I'm going to begin at verse 14. And this is going to go. We're going to go through verse 46. It's a long section. But it's a specific proclamation of God. And I will tell you, if you get what's being said here, then you will get what's going on in the heart of Habakkuk. Why suddenly this begins to come to some focus in his mind. Verse 14, God says, But if you do not obey me, and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes, and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you and you shall flee when no one pursues you <clears throat> and after all this if you do not obey me then I will punish you seven times more for your sins I will break the pride of your power I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its produce nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit then if you walk contrary to me, it's like he's saying, okay, if that's not enough and you're still not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock and make you few in number and your highways shall be desolate. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, what do you think he's going to say? He says, Then I also will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. And when you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, then you shall eat and not be satisfied. Again, and after all this, if you do not obey me, but you walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. And my soul shall abhor you, and I will lay your cities waste, then bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation, 
And your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword among you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. Then you are in your enemy's land. And the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword. Then they shall fall when no one pursues. And they shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword when no one pursues. Then you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands. Also in their fathers' iniquities which are with them they shall waste away. This, this is heavy. This is, this is unbelievable. Over and over and over again. Despite God's intervention, His chastisement, they will not turn. And then He presses them. He presses them. And this literally is unfolding. And as Habakkuk speaks, we're at the last part of this. But yet, in verse 40, look what he says. But... If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me and that they also have walked contrary to me and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt then believe it or not look at what he says then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember I will remember the land the land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its sabbaths where it lies desolate without them they will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes yet for all that when they are in the land of their enemies I will not cast them away nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am, I am Yahweh the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. This was all before history began to unfold. This was God's covenant to his people. And we see what happens. And brothers and sisters, this happens. And we take God's judgment so lightly. We take turning away from him so, so calmly. I'll get back to him tomorrow. Uh, yeah, to a degree I will obey. Or I've had enough of this lordship. Let me just come and, and kind of settle in and, and sit with the, with the brothers and sisters. God is not that kind of a God. And we can all so easily be lulled to sleep by being complacent and rebellious and apathetic. 
Robertson says, this is so important because we see Habakkuk recalling what was prophesied, seeing what was happening, recalling who God is, he realizes this is not the end. He says, linking himself with the eternity of God, which he had just developed, the prophet mediator conjoins the covenant people with himself. Yahweh is their God. Therefore, it is impossible that they would perish. Israel... At this point, there's no driverless car careening down some random mountain road of rebellion. Nor are the Chaldeans a power in themselves. Look at what he says. Yahweh, you have appointed them for judgment. Or you have appointed them to judge. O rock, you have established them to correct. That's who the Chaldeans are. Jeremiah prophesying to Judah at the same time as Habakkuk. Keep that in mind. He is saying these things while Habakkuk is prophesying as well. He provides this clear warning and last opportunity for Judah. Listen to what he says. They could repent, you see. They could escape this imminent terror. Jeremiah 18.9, God says to Jeremiah, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, Judah, Israel, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good to which I said I would benefit. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah, speak to the men of Wichita, speak to the men of Kansas, and to the inhabitants of this city, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone from his evil. And make your ways and your doings good. Repent. This is sovereignty. This is sovereignty. Yahweh is carrying out his faithful response to the rebellion of his children. Habakkuk realizes God is not going to utterly destroy his covenant people. But he's bringing upon them an extremely difficult chastisement of correction. He acknowledges that God is the captain at the helm of life. This is in Yahweh's hands. Judah may not be faithful to God, but God would be faithful to himself and to the people he has chosen. He would not allow them to remain in such depravity and idolatry any longer. Now, does the realization of God's sovereignty Turn everything to sunshine and joy for the prophet. Does God's judgment suddenly all become clear laid out before him? No, in fact, I would say that it heightens the tension. Look what happens here in verse 13. We have a struggle here. The struggle to understand is God. There is an irreconcilable inactivity going on. And he can't get this figured out. He says to God, you are a purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look on wickedness. The NASB reads, a pure eyes than to approve evil. We know that God is certainly aware of evil. In His omniscience, He knows all that occurs, both good and bad. But in no way does this imply that He ever approves or condones evil. This declaration to God Brings the holiness of Yahweh to the struggle. Holiness is the essence of God. He is pure. 
He will never be defiled by the sin of man. It is impossible. But that being true, Habakkuk goes on, he says, But why do you look on those who deal treacherously? And you hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he. The coming catastrophe upon Judah. Habakkuk says, I know it's not undeserved, but, but evil of its perpetrators, this is completely irreconcilable to who you are. Yes, yes, Judah is over its head deep in idolatry, injustice, perversion. But it can, it can honestly be said that it is more righteous than Babylon. We know amongst them there is at least a small remnant of faithful in the land. But in Babylon there is no such person. Not a single one. Habakkuk has conceded, yes, God is right to chastise this people. But must it be done this way? The next line of questioning here, verse 14. Habakkuk sets before God something very calculated. You see, fishing Fishing was vital to life in Babylon. Located within its borders of Babylon were both the great Tigris and Euphrates River. To the northwest was the Mediterranean Sea. To the southern portion was the Persian Gulf. The Chaldeans knew fishing and now they were moving that expertise onto the battlefield with men. Habakkuk presses in verse 14. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? You see, all along the way, the fast approaching Chaldeans made nations of men seem to be more, no more than teeming schools of minnows in a stream. There was no leader to defend them and no one who could lead them away from danger. You see, wherever this bear-like Chaldean sniffed a fresh nation, it scooped it up like a salmon out of the stream of the Middle East and devoured it. To requote Roberts, Robertson from last week, he said this. He said, Who would believe that a virtually non-existent entity could conquer the old capital of Assyria in 614 B.C., Nineveh in 612 B.C., Haran in 610, and rout the Egyptian army of Pharaoh Necho at Carchemish in 605? They became the world rulers over Babylonia, Assyria, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. When 20 years previously, they hardly were known to exist. Only God could do this. Now, while Yahweh has been seemingly either blind or careless in the prophet's mind, at the same time there is this extreme evil fast approaching. And they're characterized here, we'll start with their cruelty is celebrated. Cruelty is celebrated by these people. Habakkuk lays out terrorism of the Chaldeans in three graphic pictures here in verse 15. It says, they take up all of them with a the hook. They catch them in their net and they gather them in their dragnet. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Take up all with a hook. You see the Chaldeans practiced what the Assyrians had done before them. They would take a hook and they would drive it up through the lower lip of their prisoners and put that on a chain or a rope and string them along single file as they led them in captivity. Catching or literally dragging them in a way in, in a net. It's depicted in an ancient wall sculpture showing four Babylonian gods dragging away squirming captives within a net. 
Will Yahweh grab what Habakkuk's trying to think here? How can it be? Will Yahweh actually allow His chosen people to be treated this way? And then watch as the enemy not only treats in that way, but revels in victory. In verse 16, their idolatry is enjoyed. It increases here. Therefore they sacrifice to their net and they burn incense to their dragnet. Because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. The Chaldean success literally elevates their methods of destruction to godlike status to them. After all, these gods of war have provided them with huge, luxurious spoils and the finest of choice food. In their arrogance, in their arrogance, the Chaldeans have no idea that they are reliving the role of Pharaoh about 800 years earlier. We read in the book of Romans chapter 9, it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And he was raised up, and what happened to him? He was raised up to power, and he was drowned in the depths of the Red Sea. And now we have the Chaldeans in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 6. If you remember last week. Reading all this about them. And yet God says for indeed I am raising. I am raising up the Chaldeans. And then in verse 16 they inflict insatiable destruction. Shall they therefore empty their net. And continue to slay nations without pity. One version says, mercilessly killing nations forever. Catch after catch, nation after nation. The Chaldeans possess an insatiable hunger to conquer. They have an unquenchable thirst for the blood of more people. The Assyrians and the Egyptians themselves were poured into the hopper of this giant Chaldean shredding machine. Babylon seems to move through the Middle East like a massive harvesting combine, devouring mile after mile of cities, peoples, and nations. Their war machine seems unstoppable. Who can stand in their way? There remains a lingering question. A glaring elephant in the room of God's sovereignty. If the plans of God were set from eternity by Yahweh, sovereign, holy, and righteous, how can it involve the vilest of conquering murderers? Has God solved the dilemma for Habakkuk? Is everything clear now? Can he rest peaceably? Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand my watch. And set myself on the rampart. And watch to see what he will say to me. And what I will answer when I am corrected. Intensity and waiting don't often seem to go as close together as they really are. He must intensely wait. Now, it could be seen that this is simply a metaphor for meditation. On what is about to unfold. Or it could be that. Habakkuk is simply but pensively considering the onslaught that awaits his nation. But I think it's more. I think it is very possible that Habakkuk actually climbed up 
onto the massive walls surrounding the city of Jerusalem and ascended an elevated watchtower where he could look out on the city he loved and yet hated what it had become. There he settled before God and he strained, he strained to see what Yahweh would reveal to him. Commentator said this of Habakkuk, he will not attempt to reconcile in his own mind the apparent contradiction between the election of Israel by God as the object of his special love and the devastation of Israel at the hands of the rapacious Chaldeans as ordered by the Lord himself. He will not resort to the resources of human wisdom until he will, instead he will watch for an answer that can come only from the Lord. End quote. Habakkuk now desperately, confidently, and quietly commits to seek the Lord while he may be found. To call upon him while he is near. Isaiah 55 continues, Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Habakkuk here reflects Psalm 44, verses 25. It says, For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help, and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Says he even considers, and imagine this, what I will answer when I am corrected by God. Habakkuk knows that he has been sincerely bold. He has made his struggle clear and at the same time exalted Yahweh in faith. He has spoken to the living God of eternity, the Holy One, the covenant making and keeping Yahweh, the sovereign judge. He has not spoken in perfection, but he has spoken to a faithful and merciful Savior. None of us, none of us has ever spoken to God with the full honor, fear, love, and humility that he is due. In my most sincere prayers, I have never had motives absolutely pure as the holiness of God demands. Yet, yet, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Romans 8. Hebrews 7.25 He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he, Christ, always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.26 Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought. We do not know oftentimes. And I would say sometimes when we think we know, we do not know what we ought to pray. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. What a, what a seal, what a confidence. What a peace. We can come with our struggles, 
our confusion, our impossible predicaments and speak openly with our Heavenly Father because the Son and the Spirit of God speak to Him on our behalf. Knowing His own mortal depravity and weakness and still having poured out His heart and mind honestly before God, Habakkuk waits. He has come in the fear of God and yet fully trusting the God whom he fears. Say that again. He has come in the fear of God yet fully trusting the God whom he fears. He prepares for the reproof of God. Proverbs 1 gives insight. It says, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you and I will make my words known to you. Habakkuk, look at this man and marvel and follow. Habakkuk, he did not shrink back from the crisis of a lifetime. Rather through this, he grew in confident faith in the Lord. And it's not to simplify life's great quandaries into easy three-step formulas and then suddenly all is peaches and cream. It, it certainly isn't that yet for Habakkuk as we see him sitting there in this tower, this watchtower. And it will not be for you and for me either. But Habakkuk made three crucial decisions in the midst of the fog. Let me close with these. First, he anchored himself for the coming storm by recalling the truths of who God is. You and I must do that. Don't forget that. The days are coming when that may be all that you have. Just remember who God is. Secondly, he wrestled. He wrestled with God about these truths, pitted against what he was experiencing in his life. But... He did not use his struggles to destroy the truths about God. So often we see these days, these deconstruction situations, that people bail out on God when they have difficulty reconciling who He is by what their limited mortal eyes and experience tell them. They cannot put it together, so what do they do? They chuck God, the one thing that is true and that is eternal, and that we have documents to tell us about from Him. Don't Chuck that. Wrestle. Be willing to wrestle and struggle as Habakkuk did. He would not give up on truth even though he was unable to reconcile it with his circumstances. And thirdly, he confidently and fearfully waited for God's leading. He didn't know how long he would wait for God's response. So again, first of all, Recall truth. Secondly, wrestle in truth. And thirdly, wait for truth. This is a tremendous book, Habakkuk. And we have still to reach two of the most powerful scriptures in the entire Bible that are in this small book. One will be found next week in God's answer to Habakkuk. The other will be revealed in Habakkuk's great concluding song 
at the end of chapter 3. In the introduction, I quoted from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 about the difficulties, being hard-pressed, being persecuted, struggling, being perplexed. But I didn't go on, and my brother Matthew did this morning. I want to share these verses in closing. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. Paul was a walking martyr waiting for that time. The apostles were the same. May we have that heart. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh so people would see Christ. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, and therefore speak. Speak! Don't sit on these truths. People desperately need them. This world in which we live needs the light of this truth. And why do we speak? knowing that He who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. They are eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Habakkuk. In some ways, it's like the tiny book in, in the back of the library in the shelf that that finally you stumble across and you read this and man, it's amazing what you say, Father. Please teach us and deepen us so that our faith becomes like what we see growing in Habakkuk so that we see you and know you and glorify you. And that as, as we are challenged by circumstances, by attacks, by difficulties, by our own mortality, our own limitations to understand. Lord, that we will not give way to those, but we will hold fast to you and wait for you to sort these things and to help us work through them. Lord, you are worthy. Please raise men and women, young and old in this assembly, to be men and women who speak, who stand on the wall and wait for you, who look to you and trust you. Thank you that you are a worthy God. In your name we pray. Amen.